Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I'm joined by Nick Marcinko of Inside the Gators, a a good website, but a, a just a reprehensible shade of orange. Um, a, a university that. Uh, I, I don't enjoy watching uh, when they when they come to town when they come to Knoxville. I'm not not about it to be honest. Uh, Nick, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. Thanks for being here, man. I'm even basketball last year. The one thing you, we we have, I guess, baseball now too. Um, that that beat down in Gainesville. I still remember that pretty pretty significantly. Yeah. Um, do you remember that game at all? I do. It was ugly. <laughs> It was ugly. <laughs> it was it was rather ugly. Um, yeah. So I'm glad you're here, man, because I have a lot of questions. So one of the interesting things when you're reading different uh, college football pieces and reading Phil Steele's college football preview, re- reading Avalon Sports, reading different smart people profile the SEC East, um, they're it, listening to different podcasts. Like one of the things that I've noticed is everyone has just like decided that this is georgia's best chance to win the sec this is their best chance to win a national title um bama's replacing a lot had a 60 blackwood on yesterday to talk about bama and just the changes they're going through and they have a tough schedule so that is a that's a real thing but florida won this division last year florida looks good like emory jones is more of what dan mullen's looking for at the quarterback spot um Emory Jones can throw downfield, uh, having watched a lot of high school Emory Jones tape. I think a lot of people have a misconception about what he is as a quarterback because of the packages that he was he was utilized in with Kyle Trask. Um, I just think it's interesting that it seems like Mullins Gators have been cast aside or have become an afterthought in this East race when there's just as much uncertainty about JT Daniels to me and his four game sample as there is of the unknown of Emory Jones. Like, it's just kind of strange that people have absolutely. penciled him in. Do you, do you agree with this assessment? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, this is something that I've been asking myself uh, for a long time is why, you know, you look at, you look at what Florida did last year against Georgia. You look at the ret- the production returning for both teams. It's not great. It's not good, but there, there is production for both teams. And you look at that and you look at Georgia and you look at JT Daniels, who, you know, we had a four game stretch last year. Pretty good. Um, but like you said, Emory Jones has had just as much, if not more experience, even in big time games than JT has. So I think, um, and there's this like perception of Emory Jones that he can't throw the ball. And I don't quite understand where that comes from. Cause if you look at his high school tape, you look at what he's done, he's got a good deep ball. He's got good touch. Um, and you know, we all, we, we, we all, we all seen what he can do with the designed runs. So I, I do agree. I think, I think Florida has uh, more of a fighting chance than a lot of people, even Florida Gator fans are given uh, Dan credit for. So even Gators fans are not expecting an SEC East title run this year. Oh no, it's, it's uh and that's interesting too, because they, from what I've seen is, is there's a ton of fans out there that are just kept, that before this season even started casting away, just an eight and four season, uh, which is crazy to me because um, you look at the the roster, and although we, we lost Pitts, Trask, and Tony, which is a you know obviously those are irreplaceable guys. You can't replace them. But with that being said, you look at the roster from top to bottom, and I think I think clearly the the Florida Gator roster is better this year. 
And that's largely due to the defense getting better and we returned some offensive line. But if you look at the roster as a whole, I think the the Gators got better this year. Are you not concerned about the cornerback spot and the major injury there, though? With Jaden Hill? Um, yeah. You know, that that is a is a crushing loss for us because he was he was a guy that was going to contribute a ton to the in the rotation he was probably going to start and if he wasn't going to start he was going to play a lot um and so that is a crushing blow but with the additions of uh Jadarius Perkins and Elijah Blades and Jason Marshall has looked really good uh in in camp he had two interceptions in the in the first scrimmage against the first team so um with the additions of those players, uh, I think we're still I think we're still fine at the at the DB position corners. What has been the most frustrating thing for you watching this Todd Grantham defense year over year? Do you think it's t- were you looking to maybe make an adjustment on that front because Mullen is <laughs> he's he can be such a dork. But he's so like I, when he was shown recruits the the game film or game tape of the George game and stuff like that. It's it's funny to me. Like it, it's one of those where I understand why he is not for everybody. Like I understand, uh, I get that. And Georgia fans really don't like Dan Mullen, and they really don't like Todd Grantham. But I just wonder with his style, do you think it's the right mesh between the two of them? Because obviously they're close and they've worked together in multiple stops now. But like. Do you think Grantham really is the right defensive coordinator for the style that Dan Mullen ultimately wants to run on offense? Um, I, I don't I don't know if I buy into that because, you know, you see last year, everyone was obviously getting very frustrated with Todd Grantham. And I think you could see there was two moments in the season where Dan Mullen was also very frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, one in particular was shown on television and then one was not. But I think, you know, I think that he... I think he's the guy that Dan wants, but I don't know if he's executing his job properly. And what I mean by that is, you know, you see these guys and he like last year and last year was a COVID year. So you could give him a pass if you want. But there was guys, you know, not even not set on the line. They didn't know where they were supposed to be. There's small stuff like that, you know, wrong plays, you know, miscommunications on the defense. I think if he can straighten those things out, we can see more of the defense that we saw from two years ago, which was pretty good. You know, they looked organized. They were playing together. But I, I, I think that Dan really wants Todd to just show some consistency and get, get those players ready to play. Hmm. Um, when you look at the offensive line, how, does, how do you figure the offensive line will be uh, protecting for Emory? Are, are you excited about the guys that you are bringing back, the new faces? What do you make of the Florida Gator offensive line? Because I, I seem to recall with the COVID year and everything that was weird about transfers and stuff at florida last year coming into the year there was real uncertainty about like how many bodies you just have to to use on the offensive line right mm, absolutely uh there's two there's two faces that i'm excited about for next season and that's josh josh braun and ethan white uh, i've heard both those kids have been working their ass off uh especially ethan white um he's one of my uh, camp risers he's uh he's dropped i have it from 370 pounds from when he got to campus, which may be low because I think he was bigger than that. And he's now sitting at 6'5", 319 pounds. So he's a guy that I think is going to really pull through for the team. He hasn't had a lot of experience on the offensive line so far, but I think this season he's going to be good. And, you know, we returned a couple of guys. We're going to have a different center, which that's, in my opinion, probably the most important position. So we'll have to see how that plays out. So there's a little bit of a concern there. But I think overall, I think what you're going to see is is more of the same story is that this this offensive line is going to run block 
run block pretty well, and we'll see how they do in the pass block, which they that's where they struggled last year. They were really good in the run block, not so good in the pass block. So that's kind of where we stand with offensive line. Your spring and summer risers and also fallers. Okay, I have a couple. So my first riser, uh, I'm going to go with Trey Dean. You know, he didn't have a great season last year. He had to play a bunch of different positions that he wasn't really used to. Uh, but now he's back in his safety spot, which is where he was uh, recruited out of high school. He got bigger, stronger, and faster, and he holds a tremendous amount of confidence. I'm looking for him to have a breakout year. He's had a good uh, spring and so far a good uh, summer, and I'm hearing that uh, he could be in for a breakout year. So, And then my next one, I'm going to go with Lloyd Summerall. Uh, he's listed at 6'5", 247 pounds, red shirt sophomore. So he's no longer the tall, skinny guy he was coming out of Lakeland High School. He's put on 28 pounds of muscle since his arrival. Uh, so he's, he's finally big enough to make an impact on the rotation. He's, he was never, he was always too small. He couldn't, he never saw the field because he was just too small, but finally put on that muscle and he's ready to go. And I'm, I hear he's looking really good and ready to be in the rotation. And my last one was Ethan White, like I mentioned. And then I do want to give a shout out to Jason Marshall. I know he's only a freshman, but he, uh, he looks the part. He looks like he's ready. He could, he could very well be the, the starting corner uh, opposite of Elam. Uh, when we face uh, FAU on uh, on that first weekend, because he looks good, he looks the part, he looks, he has the size, clearly has the skill. So he's another one. And then for my fallers, I hate to call these guys fallers, especially this first one because he's only a freshman, and that would be Desmond Watson. Um, the only reason I call him a faller is because he's 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 struggling to lose the weight, and he's struggling with the conditioning aspect. He came in, I don't have his exact weight, but. Had to have been 400 pounds, um, which is way too big to be playing the D line. But he is very quick for for his size. Um, and it's like I said, I hate to call him a faller, but if he can, you know, he needs to. You know, I, I've heard that the the players are having to get on him about conditioning and all this and making sure he's eating right. So he needs to make sure he's uh, doing his part so that he can contribute to this team because he he, he has the potential to be a really really good player. Hmm. And then my next faller is going to be Amari Bernie. Uh, He's he's been around the team for a while. Um, I just I just I've I've always thought this about him. I just don't see how he fits on this team. He uh, he he's kind of like a tweener to me. He he plays in between positions. His size has never been right. And actually, I looked up before this. He's listed at six two, two hundred and thirty nine pounds, which is too big to play any DB positions, whether it's star or or corner. It's too big. So um, he that. That tells me right there he's probably going to try to play linebacker, but I just I don't see him making any. And I know he's a, a veteran, but I don't see him making a contribution this year to the team. Interesting. That's what I have. Okay, I like it. I like it. Um, we're going to take a quick break for our advertisers, but we will be right back. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas Podcast as this Wednesday afternoon edition of the podcast rolls along where I'm joined by Nick Marcinko, who covers the Florida Gators down there in Gainesville. Um, Nick, I love going through different teams' schedules and perusing through like what's realistic um, and just sometimes you're just like, hey, it could be worse. Just take a gander at uh, Georgia Tech's schedule. Um, when you look at this 2021 Florida Gators schedule, is there? Do you see any major landmines? Do you see any back-to-back weeks that really concern you? That excite you? What do you What do you make of the schedule right now? Well, you know the 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 first thing is that we open up 
against our big, you know, SEC game against Alabama, which is, you know, that's always tough to play your first SEC game against, uh, you know, the one of the best team in the SEC, and they have been for a long time. Uh, so Do you want to play easy. them early, though? Is that like a case where you would, if you have to play them, you would rather play them early or later in the season? So I think for for this season, it's so hard to tell because both teams are trying to do so much so quickly. You know, we have we're implementing our new offense, and I do mean new offense. Like we, you know, this offense is going to look entirely different than what it did against you know with Kyle Trask, obviously. Um, and so, and you know, with Bryce Young in Alabama, they're trying to get their their new guy in. So I think this year, I would say I would probably rather play them uh, early. But I think in most years, I would I would rather play them at the end. But this year is a little different because we're both implementing new uh, a new offense, and we're both implementing a bunch of new guys. And I think uh, it should be a fun game. Um, but I think it's going to be tough because you know uh, you, you you we all know that Nick Saban's going to have his guys ready. Uh, so it's up to Dan and his and his crew to uh, match that same energy because they're going to bring it, and so we have to bring it as well. And then you know we follow up with Tennessee, who. Um, I think we, I think we can beat. Okay, um, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm off. <laughs> no, but if you don't mind asking, mm. if you don't mind me asking you a question. What, what did you think about the Josh Heupel hire? I think he's the l- most likable coach UT's had in a long time. Um, I think the kids really do like him, and when the kids talk about the ones who stayed over, because there were a lot of departures in the transfer portal after Pruitt left. Um, but the ones who stay, when you read the quotes and you, and you listen to these kids, like it's a different vibe, a different environment. It's a lot more upbeat. That doesn't translate to wins necessarily. Like there are a lot of happy go lucky coaches that don't get enough. Um, but there is also the ones who, um, just push too hard and make it grueling and not fun. Um, I think the difference with Pruitt and Hypel is that Pruitt, if things had gone the right way because of how, uh, how elite of an recruiter he was. Right. Tennessee could have gotten back and caught Georgia in the sense that like I think they could have recruited pretty pretty close um if the violations everything it doesn't happen the problem is Kirby is also a very good football coach and like a head manager coach like someone who can actually be the CEO of a program while also recruiting his tail off uh Pruitt wasn't that so Pruitt um if he was more of a CEO guy to match his recruiting chops and his defensive chops, then I think we would have been in business. But no, I don't think Hypel will recruit well enough to get Tennessee back in the consistent, like, oh, we could, like, the Eric Ainge stuff. Like, it's all relative. Mm-hmm. It depends on, like, what your expectations are for Tennessee. And the talent in the state of Tennessee is just not what it is in Florida, what it is in Georgia. Like, Florida and Georgia will always have an, an advantage over Tennessee just year over year because of just the recruiting base the there's only so much you can pull from memphis from nashville and things like that because even if you lock down the state which is something that they're doing and they have this whole plan where like jerry mack goes to memphis and um they just have different uh locations where they're they're matched to to lock down the state which is great but you're just going to get a lot of three and four stars like you're not gonna get the five stars that you need to to compete with the floridas and the georgias consistently that being said, Florida, as you know, also struggles a little bit more than they used to 20, 25 years ago because Alabama's in your home, in your backyard now. Clemson's in your backyard now. There are a lot more, Ohio State is in your backyard now. This was not a thing 25 years ago. Like 
you now have South Florida, you now have FAU, you have a lot more competition, you have a lot more D1 programs. Like it's just, it's harder to get those guys. That's the, I think the biggest reason Florida State's not a powerhouse anymore is because of all the different people who are popping into Florida for recruiting. So I think Hypel will do enough to make this fun. I think the offense will be electric. I think he will fix that immediately. Um, I, I think that is something that I would be, I would be floored if this offense is not top 25, top 30 in offensive efficiency this year. Like I would be floored. Um, even if it is Joe Milton, um, under center, but there's just too much speed out wide. There's too much speed with this offense. And I think it's, uh, it's going to score a lot of points. Do I think this defense is going to get absolutely destroyed? Yes. Do I think there will be questions with how this defense will work? Um, even with a good hire, um, at, with Tim Banks from Penn state and Rodney Gardner as an elite recruiter on the defensive line. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just think there's a ceiling. Pruitt's ceiling was significantly higher, but his floor was ugly and we saw the floor. I don't think Hypel has a bad floor. I think his lowest floor is like six and six, seven and five year over year. Like that is the worst case scenario, but he's not going to get Tennessee back to recruiting or to competing for sec east titles year every year and winning and really being in the college football playoff game i don't think he is capable of getting to that oh, but i could be wrong i could be wrong and also right. i just want to enjoy competent tendency football for a couple of years and Absolutely. the sanctions i have no idea i i do know tiger illustrated uh larry williams who was on a few months ago told me tony elliott was close like very close and was talking with assistants about pulling from clemson to tennessee so danny white got Tony Elliott very close to taking the Tennessee job. And I, I wonder if the sanctions are not up, we have Tony Elliott. And then it's just like a totally different ball game. Like if you yeah, pull, yeah, absolutely. I know that was a really long answer, but the, the, this, oh, yeah. as you can see, I can talk Tennessee all day, but yeah, it's just oh, yeah. complicated. And I just want to watch fun Tennessee football. I want us to, to knock pit around in week two. I want to beat Bowling Green 70 to seven on Thursday in a couple weeks. Like right. that's, that's what I would like. Absolutely. And just, you know, not, just pull my hair out as we're uh, getting shut out in the second half yet again. Yeah. I mean, I went through some, uh, some pretty bad head coaches too. So I, uh, I understand. And I will tell you, uh, having a head coach that can score the football is fun. It's just where football's it's going. Fun. Like if you're going to have a defensive minded yeah, guy, like Kirby or something like that, or Saban, you still have to, you, you have to still prioritize the offense and Saban hates it, but he still does it. And I think Kirby took a little bit of time to do that, but, hiring monk and i think was a shrewd move in understanding that like you've got to have that lockdown you've got to have the quarterback spot locked down like stetson bennett is not acceptable like that's one of those where like that is not acceptable to be a to be a thing i actually just rewatched that uh florida georgia game um yesterday and Mm. i i could not believe that that's who georgia trotted out against us i couldn't they've trotted out some names against you guys i think falton bowda uh got some some play against y'all in gainesville um what is the spread for that game right now oh i don't know i know against alabama we're 18 point dogs that's way too high yeah yeah i agree uh but i have not seen the georgia let me imagine it's closer than 18 but um i don't know i haven't seen i could probably find it i'm curious because i just think georgia fans have locked that in i would like to know what uh i can't let's see are there hmm nine and a half? Let me see. Because uh, I got the team by team. I did that for George. Or okay, here it is. FanDuel is doing it. July sixteenth. Uh, 
Spurs that game by game. This is great podcasting. I thought this would be it. Where'd it go? Because I know Tennessee's got released game by game spread, and I don't know where. I think maybe it was VS. I I don't know. It, whatever it is, um, I'm very curious. We're going to be underdogs, so you but, think you'll be underdogs? Oh yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, we we don't play them until halfway through the season, so I guess we'll see. But uh, as it stands right now, I'm 100 percent we're underdogs. Interesting, especially after beating them last year. I just yeah, I don't know. But, but I mean. Like at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned Georgia being, you know, th- this seems like their year, right? Does that not seem like it's their, d- like, does the media not portray that every single year for Georgia? Or is that just me? I like, think people get bored. Like you know what it is? Is people yeah. are bored. And Ohio State's boring. Clemson's boring. Alabama's boring. Like, there's Georgia's like this, good, like, the tragedy of the way they've lost in big games thus far, right. uh, I think, is part of it, too. Um, the other part of it is you see every year the recruiting rankings. Like it, it's right there. It's, right. Uh, it is it, right there. I mean, that, I get it. I get it because they they are supposed to be mm-hmm. you know best of the best. But you know we we haven't seen. I mean, I know they've been good, but it seems like to me every single year they are like the the shoe in to win the East. And, and I just like even even back when we had Felipe Franks. I mean, we 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 were beating Georgia in the third quarter of that game. So it wasn't like you know we we. Clearly didn't have the roster. I mean, it was Dan Mullen's, what, second year. We didn't have the roster we wanted. And we still, I mean, we were in the game against Georgia up until the, the very end, you know, the fourth quarter. But we were winning in the third quarter. So I don't, like, to me, I just don't, I guess I don't understand, like, this whole, you know, Georgia hype every single year type thing. When, when you know, they are very good, but there are teams right behind them. There are teams ready to go. So if I were to say Florida had a 9-3 and three schedule look to it, what would you say? Uh, it's funny you said that because that's like the betting odds is like we're nine games, hmm. which I, if you told me we would go nine and three, I would say that is the worst case scenario. Okay. Uh, I see, I see a 10 and two season, a nine and three at worst. Um, so if I was a betting man, I would, I would bet nine and three all day. I guess the, I don't worry about Carolina. I don't, the, I don't worry about Vanderbilt obviously, but like, I do think at Kentucky, will be extremely interesting i have that circled like i'm uh, i uh, i also circled that game i saw i was like writing down some trap games and that was the first one that i circled i just kentucky's good like they're they're competent and i think they're a pain in florida's ass and florida obviously owns that series but going to kentucky it's probably gonna be cold october 2nd we'll see playing at kroger field isn't easy and plus mark stoops always brings uh brings his a game against the gators and they you know the kentucky fans they don't like us, so they uh, they will pack the house. Yeah, and then LSU is just the great unknown. LSU is the big wild card on your schedule, I Huge think. Huge wild card. They could be awful I, again, and Edward Run gets fired, or they're awesome and they're back to Max Johnson's just uh, an absolute beast, and uh, or Nussmeyer, who's apparently impressed all summer. So I don't even know who's going to be under center. I mean, that game is so crazy to me because you know, like you said, they could be awful, but they were awful last year and they beat us. I know. So, uh, I, you know, or they could be decent and we could kill them. I don't know. It, it That is the biggest wild card of the season. Um, yeah, that's going to be a tough, that's going to be an interesting game, especially because it's in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Okay. Final predictions on uh, the Florida Gators this fall. What are you, what are you expecting? It is uh, August 18th. Your final predictions, Nick. You want a record or you just want record? A Do they win the East? And does Emory Jones get some some Heisman love? 
right, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with ten and two. Okay. Um, but I do have us beating one of the one of either Georgia or, or Alabama. We will we will split that game. Split those we will split that, that two game set. Uh, and I do see well, if, if you I think, split that, that looks like eleven and one to me. Well I think we may drop a game we're not supposed to. Hmm. I just don't know which one. It could be the LSU game. It could be Kentucky. I think we, um, the Kentucky game scares me a little because it's uh, it's a little earlier in the season. I, mean, I know we play Alabama and Tennessee after, but um, the Kentucky game scares me. Uh, the Kentucky LSU game. I don't know. Those two are the ones that I'm I'm circling as well. But see, if I say we win the East, that means we probably beat Georgia. And I, I do think we beat. I do think we'll be Georgia. So I'll, I'll go. I'll go ten and two, and we, and we win the East. If that's the case, it's. I am so excited for, just the the sirens and the doom and gloom in Athens. Like, Florida winning the East back to back years. Oh yeah, I mean, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what to do. I mean, Kirby could get fired for that. Like, I, that seems preposterous. But like, yeah, that, that is that the is kind something, of something. That is something that I've been thinking about too. Is um. These Georgia fans, at least the ones I've seen on Twitter, a lot of them aren't huge fans of Kirby. They don't they don't want him fired by any means yet, but they're not huge fans of him. But I mean, that's just like we've penciled in like worst case scenario for Georgia is a playoff loss. Like people right. have just penciled them. Like if you do not reach those just the the lowest of low expectations, even though it shouldn't be a cakewalk and it shouldn't be expected to beat Florida, it's just interesting to me that like that is that is where they're at. But when you recruit at this level, you're in the big game now, right? Like this is part of the deal. And if you fall short and you fall to Florida again, I mean, just Athens is going to be quite interesting this off season. If Florida runs it. I agree. All right, Nick. Well, what can we check out from you um, across the internet this week? Well, you can follow me on Twitter, Nick underscore Marcinko. That's M-A-R-C-I-N-K-O. Uh, I have a couple of my articles on, on my Twitter. You can check them out. I also have a couple of radio stories that I put out this uh, summer. You can check those out as well. All right. Well, go do that. Keep up the great work, sir. Stay safe out there and uh, enjoy enjoy the fall. And uh, who knows? So maybe much. I'll be down in Gainesville for Tennessee's yearly drubbing. Perfect. All righty. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's nothing like have uh, two guys talking about football. So, Guys being dudes. What's yes, better than sir. this? <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks, Nick. All right. Have a good one. All right. Hello and welcome to the Wednesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. As we roll along with Stats by Will, we are doing this now on Wednesdays, college basketball during the season. We'll stick with this Wednesday schedule to kind of break up the college basketball and college football shows a little bit and uh, to not overload uh, the the public with college content. Um, I'm joined, as I will be every single Wednesday, by Young Kim Palm. Stats by Will. Stats by Will. How are you? I'm just going to do the whole full name in your introductions now. <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, man. Uh, it's been a good uh, hump day of the week. Uh, yesterday, I got to say, here in Knoxville, mm. I know a lot of people, a lot of people hate rain, but I love just getting some work done, watching the rain fall outside. Everything's very quiet and peaceful indoors. It's it's like a very specific October slash November vibe mm-hmm. that we 
randomly got in mid-August yesterday, so I was very happy about it. I just uh, I cut the grass before we got started, and uh, you know what I'm doing now at 30 years old. I don't know if you're like this, Will. <laughs> I uh, I looked at my yard for a little bit. I looked at the lawn, did some lawn looking, and uh, gotta say, I understand it. I understand what my dad was doing when you get, when you just uh, do a bunch of yard work and you you look out at the sunset. You look at uh, a job well done. Um, it's great. It's a great feeling. That's awesome. I I look forward to getting there one day. I don't I don't know. I'm not like a TikTok person, but my wife shows me all of these. And mm-hmm. there's one this guy like overseeing his lawn, and then like all of his neighbors like, man, he's mowing the f out of that. Lawn. <laughs> And I wonder if that's what goes through, like, my dad's head. Like, that's what he imagines other people watching him or <laughs> I think that's probably what I do. Like, when people are driving by and I'm just like, yeah, that's me. I'm doing this. This is happening. That's that's me. I also got some bird seeds. So, I was really mad at the birds today um, because we ran out of, like, the squirrels. I have to, like, Vaseline the, the bird feeder so that they slide mm. down and they can't stay up. Um, squirrels, they just, they, they just find their way to these bird feeders and munch away. It's not for them. It's not for the squirrels. And, uh, I got this new bird feeder or this new bird seed and I, maybe it was too late in the day, but I was in here in the office working and planning and recording and no birds. And I was like, what, what, what's happening? I need my, my cardinals. I need my, my blue jays. I need my robins. I need my big ass woodpecker that i have that comes in every three days and when i say big ass woodpecker i mean big ass woodpecker and it's uh it's pretty wild he's my favorite bird that we we see and because i am so washed so washed will i look at my east tennessee bird book online i have a pdf that i look at when a new bird flies up onto the bird feeder that i'm like i don't know what that is um so yeah but that reminds me like my grandfather coming down from Michigan to visit us and he would bring his like he had three bird uh, watching books he would bring with him and mm-hmm. just flipped while he uh, looked out the window. It's it's a delight. I love bird watching uh, so much. I'm very pro bird, very pro bird watching. I mean, as you know, big owl guy. Um, I'm a big, big owl guy. I'm looking at several different owl statues in my my office at this moment. Um, but let's get into some college basketball will um to shake things up between our season previews as we get closer and closer to the college basketball season college football right around the corner um speaking of are you planning on going to the bowling green game uh no <laughs> I'll, I'll be up no i uh, i'll be in town though so uh we, we haven't discussed it on the podcast my little brother mm-hmm. uh, is a freshman at ut and his first day of class was today so he moved we moved him in sunday mm-hmm. uh, and I've, he's not uh, it's funny you know, you know me. My little brother does not watch sports at all. Hmm. So uh, I've I've told him like, "Hey, man, you know, I know like football's not your thing. I know you'd rather do almost anything else, but you got to go to a game or two at least." Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to convince him to go to that Thursday night game because one Thursday night is not really that big of a time investment. Mm. True. So you got to do it just under the lights. It's going to be on the SEC network. Um, you get to see Scott Loeffler in person roaming the Bowling Green Falcon sidelines. Like how many times do you get to do that in your life? God, what a weird deal. Cause well, I, I'm trying to piece it back together. They hired him after they fired the Texas tech coach. They Googled and then hired. Correct. Uh, uh I don't even remember who was before Loeffler. 
they they like hired a, their AD at the time googled best offense in college football <laughs> and this is true based on the whatever Toledo newspaper it is that reported it googled best offense in college football and then determined the coach they could afford yes as a- here it is I I forgot about this oh my the, goodness the, yeah the, Mike Jinx coaching searches I could imagine incredible but also not a bad idea i've seen worse <laughs> coaching searches like i've seen some worse that, idea right like just go google best offensive coach in texas like right now that would probably lead you to sunny dykes like hey yeah. if you can pull him in why not sunny dykes is a great coach I, I don't hate it um no i'm actually i think i'm watching toledo no i'm watching yeah toledo bowling green tonight with my maction pieces i'm gonna write about the maction every wednesday night this fall um i grew up on maction i i love maction dearly it's one of my favorite things about college sports is those maction games um so i'm very very excited um which naturally will leads us to some stats in college basketball so i wanted to pick your brain and to go back into the archives because i think what we're going to see a lot and when i listen to different preview shows um like I was listening to the Villanova preview um, on set the screener today uh, during my workout and listening to different pe- people talk about it. It's just like two thirds of the conversation is, well, they were derailed by COVID and uh, this player was out for this amount of time. This coach was gone. They had to do this. Like that's every preview right now. And I just wonder where like, okay, so that's all part of the conversation. I get that. But like, what about the numbers? What about people that really overachieved or put up some bonkers numbers and like how do we how do we see that translating the following year like do they come back down to earth after a full off season where everybody is back to normal where there is a lot more competition on every roster because players were able to stay an extra year and there's a lot of transfer movement and which which numbers are going to be real which ones are gonna be like oh that was a covid fluke where it was just like yeah. the it worked out for this particular guy because of these set of circumstances, but this was not not going to work long term, and that they were going to regress to the mean. Um, for you, Will, what team wide stats from last year's COVID season are real, and which ones can we expect to regress? What did you find in your when you, in your setting? See, what, part of this, what's going to be kind of strange when we talk about you know the twenty 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 one season versus what it's going to look like this uh, fall and winter and spring, is you know a, a lot of what happened nationally, not just you know one specific team, but nationally, is kind of just like continuations of trends that have been coming for some time. Like, for instance, we had the lowest free throw rate uh, in modern college basketball history last season which was one year after setting the lowest free throw rate ever seen before Hmm. and so so, i mean free throws are continuing to be less and less of the average game which is uh in a way like when you watch it's horrible to say this but when you watch a player like start sweating at the line uh late in one of those ncaa tournament games you really love the free throws and I, i I hope we don't see that continue to dwindle in the way we've seen it dwindle in the regular season lately. And it is kind of funny to think about that because, you know, the first thing we think about when we complain about college basketball is, oh, they're calling too many fouls. But you can make the case they're not calling enough compared to previous seasons. And Well, let me stop you there. Did Like, this is something, too. Like, when you're watching the games this fall and winter, 
Did you notice that? Was this something that you noticed that made you go and look at the numbers? Like, is there a drop off here? Like, that's something I think about a lot, too, is just like, did I notice this in the moment? And I'm curious, did you notice in the moment that it just feels like people are not going to the line and drawing fouls as much? Part of it, yes, because what it comes out as really is it's more evident in shot selection. Like, you Mm. don't see as many... I know kind of like the whole thing we're going to, I feel like what we're going to end up talking about a lot this winter is which teams have adopted Alabama's philosophy, which is Mori ball basically mm-hmm. uh, where you, you know, you don't really get to the line that often and you take a lot of threes. Uh, but you, you live with that because those are the higher percentage shots statistically. I, I think because we've seen that sort of edging away from the mid range over the last 10 years in college basketball, and we'll get into this shortly. Because we've seen that, I think it kind of correlates with the overall free throw numbers going down, and they have dropped for seven seasons in a row. Uh, it, it, what's what's tough to determine in real time is like how much it affects what you see now versus what you saw in like 2018, because the difference is really about two free throws a game of that. So in real time, you're not thinking about it too much, but over the course of you know several seasons, where you're thinking wow, this game feels a lot less physical than I remember this game feeling 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's where it kind of starts to set in. Like Basketball now does not look the same, really, as basketball even did 10 years ago. If you go back and watch those NCAA tournament games, like those had a lot more mid-range-focused offenses, a lot of kind of beating and banging in the paint, a lot more offensive rebounds, which are a real driver for free throws because you get fouled going back up. Uh, all of those things are coming down. And I, I think, you know, it, it, it's funny because we've sort of set new lows for all of those. We set that they tied a new low for offensive rebounding, you know, new low for free throw rate, new low or tied the new low for uh, mid range shot selection percentage. But I think we're going to continue to see that incrementally drop year over year. I, I, we may have reached like a temporary plateau in some of those, but it's too early to tell. Hmm. That is interesting how many teams are going to adopt the the Alabama Mori Ball approach because uh, I don't think it's going to be the Tennessee Volunteers. No, not at all. I think it's just going to be circumstance where it's like uh, some teams, (laughs) it's just how they're built. Like I think some teams, like if you wanted to play that way and you don't have the shooters, it's going to be quite ugly. Like some teams just literally can't do that. It it really just depends on your personnel. And I don't even think Tennessee has the personnel to, to run that kind of scheme effectively. No, like tell 2019-20 Virginia, who is like yeah. 200 offense or whatever, go, tell them to go take more threes. <laughs> I mean, the, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm really more focused on what big six teams take that approach because mm. – uh, and this is I've, – I've got a lot of stuff coming on this, and so it's fresh on the brain, free little promo there. But mm. uh, the, the sort of what we call mid-majors, which are – you know, it's such a weird – thing to call 25 conferences that all have way different budgets from one another. Mm. Uh, They were really early adopters of the uh, pace and space, you know, threes and layup system. Uh, Alabama is the first true case. I think we've seen at the big six level of somebody pushing this to the extreme where, you know, Alabama, I think only 12% of their shots last year were what we would call non rim two pointers, which are runners, floaters, mid range jumpers. We saw That's it in person. The, Did you go to the Alabama Tennessee game? No, I wish I had. I, I saw didn't. it in person, and I like turned to my dad, and he we were getting so frustrated. But I'm like, this is just going to be a math problem. Like Tennessee is just in a in a math problem, but they're not going to win 
This is like this is simply they cannot win this math problem. Yeah, and I th- I think if anything continues, like if something that I am confident that will continue is that you're going to see the share of mid range shot attempts drop, not like by a huge three to five percent amount, but like somewhere in like the half a percentile to one percent range. This uh, the this season I think is a decent bet because they had such a high profile case of that working in a coach's second year when no one really expected it to. And, you know, when, when I looked at this for a mid-range post I've got coming out Friday, the top 25 teams in effective field goal percentage, which is like the stat of the four factors on Ken Palm, it's the one that explains roughly 55% of your efficiency. The top 25 uh, effective field goal percentage teams year over year for about 10 years now have taken about 5% fewer per 100 shots, uh, mid-range or non-rim two-point shot attempts than the national average. And that first approach to that was almost entirely adopted by mid-majors, like, you know, Liberty, Wyoming, uh, Furman, uh, Davidson, obviously a really early adopter of that uh, in the early to mid-2010s, Belmont. Uh, That's where it all started, and I think... Because we finally, for the first real time, have a case of a big six team adopting that approach and succeeding with it very much so, I think there are going to be other teams that try and steal that. Like, I mean, there are some teams that are going to be more uh, easily able to get there than others. Iowa State. uh, Yeah, like (laughs) Iowa State, of course, is going to be one. I Mm -hmm. mean, like, I could see, I honestly could see Vanderbilt really leaning into that approach. Do you think Stackhouse uh, is that kind of coach? I, he, I mean, they were one of the lower. Uh, they took one of the lower amounts among Big Six teams yeah. last year. Only twenty-one percent of their shots were non-rim twos. Like Nebraska, Hoiberg. That's an obvious case for somebody yeah. who's going to try at Creighton, etc. You're going to see, I think, teams that are already inclined to get there get there at a more extreme pace. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that will be real. I think the shift towards what we loosely call Mori Ball, just because there's a million different things you'd call it. I loved Ball and Oats from Matt Norlander, by the way. <laughs> uh, Ball and Oats is fantastic. But mm-hmm. uh, whatever you call that, we're going to see a, a, more of a shift towards that from the teams that are willing to adopt that. Like I don't think you're going to see Kentucky or Tennessee do it, but you could easily see a team with nothing to lose take that on. I wouldn't rule out Kentucky. I, I know, but we, we've seen them take. We, we haven't really seen them do um, anything to this extreme so far. We've seen, you know, like the Malik Monk season. Yeah, they took more threes. They were a, a little bit more space oriented. Jamal Murray's team as well. But uh, I would be just kind of surprised, even with their personnel, if they got that number because last year is about thirty six percent of their shots. If they got that number even below like twenty nine percent, it would be a surprise to me. Yeah. I just I think it's gonna be a lot of teams who or coaching staffs that are facing a lot of pressure are the ones I'm turning to, and I think that's why you go to Vanderbilt, where it's like some of the programs just don't have to adopt this. Like Arkansas doesn't have to do this. Arkansas's fine. Like I don't. Ole Miss just had one of the best seasons they've had in a long. Like they're they're rolling. Like they're moving in the right direction. Um, you look at Texas A&M. A lot of pressure there. Like I mean, it's not working so far with Buzz Peterson. Georgia. Why not? Like, what, George, like you, you can't be any worse. No, that you, you, you literally can't be worse. 
I, I mean, they're, they're going to be, uh, it, it's really hard. I think people do underestimate a little bit how hard it is to have such a wholesale shift mm-hmm. in dot selection personality team wide. Yeah. Because you know, like the average team is probably going to bring back, you know, what, like 50, 60% of their minutes or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, eight players you got to tell, hey, you are, you know, of those eight players, six are not allowed to take this shot anymore. And here's why that can be hard to explain. But for like, if you're starting over fresh, there's no penalty to me. Or if you've got a lot of pressure on you and you need to win like Georgia, uh, like, I mean, probably Iowa State probably needs some wins. Right. That was just the person I thought about just right away because it's just they're in such a bad, bad predicament where it's just like you got to you got to do something drastic to fix a lot of problems there. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them adopt some of that philosophy. But yeah, to, to wrap it all back to the start, I mean, that's something I see coming. We're going to see a continuation of that. Um, I, I think we're going to see, you know, more three, like a slight increase in threes. Mm-hmm. It, it's been steady at about 37% of all shots for a couple seasons now since they moved the three-point line back. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like with a full off season, with our shift, you know, towards the sports obsession with threes, I think we are going to see a slight increase in that. But uh, those, I think, are all real. But you know, like there, some of the outliers we saw last year are gonna, we're, we're going to see some changes back to normality. Like uh, the big one for me, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this has been pointed out by others, is home court winning percentage. Uh, where it's been consistently right at or within a percent or two of 60% for two decades, and then it fell to almost 57% last year. Hmm. There were some conferences where it was almost a coin flip. Uh, and if you judged basically on that, you would say, okay, full arenas had like 3 to 4% to your win probability, which is big. I mean, that's a little over a point. But I, I think you're going to see a return to relatively normal home win percentages uh, which are, we're, I'm going to get into that in a bit of you know what teams could benefit there, but we're we're going to see less high end shooting. I think uh, 19 teams posted an uh, effective field goal percentage of 56 percent or better last year. There were 18 combined in the two seasons before that, so I don't think you're going to see some explosive uh, explosive numbers quite to that level again. Um, and then just some individual ones. Uh, we saw the highest offensive rebound percentage posted since 2016-17, mm-hmm. the highest effective field goal percentage ever from Gonzaga, the highest two-point percentage ever from Gonzaga. And the real fun one for me, three of the four best free throw percentages in college basketball history. I think it's probably safe to say none of those are going to repeat. Your cat's not on board. Well. No, he is pissed off. At he hates three and D. He hates Mori Ball. Like your cat is the most pro triangle dip it down <laughs> low cat I have ever come across. I know he he adds some nice little vocal tones to his uh, desire to see Tennessee take more sixteen footers. Mm-hmm. He said, <laughs> "Okay, John Fulkerson, instead of spinning to the rim, mm. spin for this eleven footer, and we'll see what happens." Was there a less surprising NIL move than John Fulkerson, John Fulkerson signing on with Palt? I was surprised it took as long as it did. <laughs> I thought that would be day one, honestly. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I guess like, some of those where it's like smaller-ish businesses, it might take some time to work 
you know, like bottom to top to get that to work, uh, you know, legally or whatever. But uh, I was surprised that wasn't like the first week NIL was instituted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so who had some unusually successful seasons last year in the 2020-2021 college basketball season, um, both from a team level and an individual level last year? And who of that group do you think is most likely to to repeat those? Um, those just above average, or not even above average, outpacing their expectations, outpacing what the, the stats and the math says they should have been. Yeah, so I, I think a great way to measure this, at least for me, Ken Palm, you know, talk about him all the time, of course, but his program ratings, you can see when a team's best or worst season was. And there are four teams in the top 10 last year, you know, outside of Gonzaga and Baylor, who had their best seasons in at least 25 years, USC, Alabama, Iowa, and Colorado. And uh, for me personally, I don't want to hear your take on this, of course, the clear standout to me for this is at least somewhat sustainable for another year or two is Alabama because they bring the most back. You know, I- Iowa, it's hard to see them doing what they did again without Luca Garza. Colorado kind of seemed to be a more than the sum of its parts deal. Uh, and it's, without McKinley Wright, that seems like it's going to be a tough haul. Uh, in USC, if you're not having like the number two pick on your roster, you kind of. I don't think you're going to have the sixth best team in the nation again. Yeah. So I, I think Alabama for me, that's the team where it stands out in my head. Like, you know, maybe they aren't going to be, you know, top 10, top eight all season long again, but they could definitely be in a spot where they're consistently top 15, top 20 for a while. They're recruiting pretty well. Uh, the system until other big six teams catch up with it and game plan for it is outpacing a lot of coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I could see working for quite a while. And as a Tennessee graduate, I am rooting for anyone to hire Nate Oates away. I wonder, he seems pretty okay and it, he can probably win there. So I, I would imagine he's probably <laughs> pretty content. Like you can win a national title in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. That honestly, and it's not, it doesn't seem to me like he would want an NBA job. Yeah. He's not there yet. I don't think he no, he's there it, yet. It would, it would take another. It would take the Brad Stevens career arc, where it's like you you mm-hmm. get your high, but you have to sustain it for three or four more years, and then they would bring you in. Mm. Speaking of Butler, oof, yeah, oof, Ugh, oof. not good. It's a shame too, because you know, great school, great uniforms, great mascot. Everything is set up for them to be better than they are. I want to go to the game there so bad. Hinkle Fieldhouse looks yeah. amazing. Um, so who who do you, who did you think was the most surprising in that group when you were looking at um, the unusually successful seasons? Who outside of the most notable ones? Who do you think who who popped the most for you? Of like mm, raised eyebrow all the way through the roof. Oh, Colorado for sure. Hmm. Because Ken, like I know we refer to Ken Palm a lot, but. You know, 25 years of history here, prior to last season, they'd never finished higher than 34th. Mm-hmm. And they, they hadn't won an NCAA tournament game in a long, long time. But, I mean, basically, from Christmas on, they were one of the 10 best teams in basketball. And the only thing that seemed to stop them was, you know, like, going away from Colorado. At home, they were just about unbeatable. 
Hmm. I mean, you, they beat at home. They beat Oregon. You know, Stanford was an easy win. Arizona, Oregon State. They beat USC and UCLA back to back in a two day span at home by eighteen and nine points. That what they were doing was incredibly unusual for them because normally, the Colorado that I think we're all used to is sort of this grinded out team that's typically really good on defense, makes you work hard for your buckets, and you know, come March they're like an eight seed or a nine mm-hmm. seed. Uh, last year was their best team in a really, really long time. And as fun as it would be to watch them sustain that, because I think the atmosphere they have there when it's a full house is one of the more underrated in college basketball. Mm-hmm. It's hard because, you know, Colorado is does not seem to be the easiest place to recruit to in any sport. I haven't seen a coach in either major sport, football or basketball, have a ton of sustained recruiting success there. Yeah, and you thought that maybe the Pac-12 aspect would help a little bit, but it it really hasn't. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is why recruits don't really want to go to Boulder. Um, I'm not really get, sure. My mom and dad have been there multiple times. They they speak glowingly of Boulder. I've never been, so I can't I can't say. I've never been to Colorado. Period. Sadly. Mm. See, I, I I wonder if, and I would love to see McKinley Wright become this. They need sort of that signature NBA player to sort of recruit for free for them. Well, they already do. Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, is he signature? <laughs> I mean, Spencer Dinwiddie, I mean, I think a lot of programs would kill to have a player as successful yeah. in the NBA as Spencer Alec, Dinwiddie. Alec Burt, I guess, could, you know, that, yeah. that's kind of there too. But uh, you, I think you need somebody who's like, everybody knows their name. They're on TV more nights than not. Yeah. But that's just hard, man. There's all kinds of power five or power six conferences that would kill to have a player like that. Those are, whew, that's easier said than done. It's just Colorado is also just not a basketball haven. So it's just going to be more difficult to, because they're not a blue blood and there's just not a lot of kids growing up in that area that are dying yeah. to go play at Boulder. Yeah. That's it, the thing it, it, is they need a five star to grow up around Boulder. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at it now because I was curious. They've had two. Uh, or well, three first-round draft picks in the last seventeen years: Derek White, mm. Alexandre Roberson. So, it's it's not like a huge. I forgot list. about Derek White. Yeah, I did. I did as well because he was not there for a super long time. Even though he came into the league as one of the older players, very strange, strange dichotomy there. Um, on the flip side, what about teams who had down years? Who? Who do you think is most likely to to flip that in a positive way next year? What a fun! This is a fun one because we mm. had a truly special season for bad years last year uh, on the Blue Bloods, Duke, yeah. Kentucky. They all really disappointing, and I, I this kind of have a hot take because they're a three seed, but I think you could give an honorary honorable mention to Kansas because mm. that was one of the the least talented and least good Kansas teams they have had in a long time there. I, I know they ended up a three seed, but you know they, they felt like they got there in smoke and mirrors. They they never really seemed to get it together at all during the season. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they got to play USC and got blown out of the building. Uh, it's, it was it's just seeing, it was weird seeing, it was discombobulating seeing a limited kansas team in the talent department like that just has never happened in our lifetime right like it just was weird it was weird and it, it speaks to the the level of work they've built there and how good that program is that we're i'm talking about a team 
that finished, I believe, 28th in Ken Palm as a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how good they are. But they stood out like a sore thumb to me more than any other blue blood last year in their struggles. Like, yeah, Kentucky kind of sucked, yeah. but you could you could figure that out. And Kentucky also had a bunch of talent that just didn't work out that year. Like, Kansas just didn't have high-end talent. Like, that was the weird part. It's just watching it. I'm like, I don't know how... There's no path to them getting better and figuring it out this year. And I think Self talked about it on the Goodman and... Um, what is the the podcast he does with the other former Purdue player? I'm blanking on his name. Robbie Hummel. Um, he talked about it when they were interviewing. I'm just like the, the, I don't know what people want. Like there's only so much I can do with this group. Like I think that was just one of those things where it's just, I didn't have the pieces. Yeah. And I think they are going to be quite a bit better this yeah. year. That's. I mean, we were talking about them, what, two weeks ago as favorites in the Big 12? Yeah. Favorite, like favorites in the big 12 and a team that I think is going to open the season at minimum in the top seven or so mm-hmm. of the whole, like everybody is going to look at that as like, okay, Kansas back to their, you know, normal state. Uh, but the, I'm really interested to see this Kentucky team. We've talked about them, but there's so many moving parts there and so many new pieces that are really unusual for new Kentucky pieces. Normally the new Kentucky pieces are 17 and 18 year olds, not 22 year olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Duke thing, they're going to be fine. I mean, they got Paolo Benchero and uh, Wendell Moore, A.J. Griffin on that team. That's a really good team. Day one, uh, legit title contender. Um, but, you know, when I when I look at it in terms of teams, I've still got a lot of questions about. Michigan State still doesn't have, like, a player you can point to and say, okay, that is a Tom Izzo-level player when I think of, you know, like the Cassius Winstons of the world. Like there, there's not a player on that roster right now where I look at it and I say, that is a player who breathes Michigan State basketball. Hmm. I, I just can't point one out. And maybe, you know, the magic of Tom Izzo is we're talking about this now in August and by February, they'll have one probably. But, you know, looking at it on paper where it's like Joey Hauser, Tyson Walker, you know, Gabe Brown, A.J. Hoggard. Hagard, whatever it is, none of those guys like truly speak out to me as even like first team Big Ten players. Yeah, I don't know. It it also doesn't help them uh, that Michigan has just (laughs) turned into a juggernaut and just are recruiting at a juggernaut level. Like that has really been a under talked about aspect of this. Is just what Michigan has done. Yeah, that it, it is kind of it's like the. When you're seeing Michigan kind of like come up under beeline all those years, you're like, okay, this is as good as they can do. And then Jawan Howard comes in and just takes it to a totally new level. Yeah. Uh, like if you're Izzo, and I know Izzo is probably, I, I wouldn't say probably going to retire soon, but you know, you he's 66. He, he doesn't have that long left uh, in the sport of basketball. You look at that, you look at Michigan rising up like this. And I think he, you have to wonder like, what more can he do? Outside of if Michigan is taking all those recruits like Caleb Houston, uh, what can Michigan State do in return if they're already fighting the Kentuckys, the Dukes, the Kansases of the world for those players? What happens when you have the team two hours away from you taking them? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, With the return of fans, what should that mean um, in terms of home court advantage, who do you think benefits the most? I think we're going to see, like I mentioned earlier, we'll see an uptick to normal levels in uh, in terms of home court win percentage. It's been consistently about 59 to 61% mm-hmm. for it right now. Uh, 
it was at 57% last season. We should see that get back to normal. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, it, I think what you're going to see is an increased uh, foul differential really more than anything else uh, between home and away, uh, home and away teams. You'll see the teams that really stand out as having big home court advantages. Uh, a big one to me, obviously Colorado, not only the, um, the altitude being such a big issue, but, you know, based on their last 60 Pac-12 conference games, they've gotten uh, an, an average of a five-foul differential better at home versus away. You know, Memphis, 5.2 fouls better at home versus away. That I think you're going to see more of that coming back, where it's, you know, the teams that maybe didn't feel like they were getting the home cooking last year are going to get it this year. So if you're playing on the road and you're going into one of those tough environments, like you're... Uh, I don't know, say Tennessee going to Arkansas. Mm. Uh, and you have a lot of experience with watching Arkansas get many, many home calls that make you want to spin off your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you'll get that feeling back that you did not know you missed or wanted to miss. Uh, Hard pass. Don't want it. <laughs> Motion dismissed. My pick for the team that's going to benefit most is West Virginia. Mm. Uh, it's kind of a, it could be an out of the box pick, but I think one, if you've watched like a normal West Virginia home game over the years, they are crazy environments. They're literally uh, burning couches in the building. It's a, hot, yeah. it's a huge fire hazard, but hey, it's Morgantown. It just means <laughs> when, more. When, when they're playing like banner schools, like when they're drawing a Kansas, a Texas, Oklahoma, Baylor and whatnot, like those are insane crowds, and you know it's backs up statistically uh, from 2014-15 through 2019-20, what we're calling the last somewhat normal season. There were only seven teams in all of college basketball that had more wins at home against the top 25 opponents. Of those seven, only four had a better winning percentage than WVU's 14 and seven, uh, which is critical because away from home against top 25 opponents, they are 12 and 28. Uh, last year they had a seven game sample against top 25 teams. They went three and four. They had a lot of close losses in those. Um, and it really felt like in those, they missed that full crowd. Uh, you know, they could have used those extra couple foul calls. They could have used that little push. It, you know, we, I hate to do the whole, like they just have more heart argument or whatever, but it, it, it's it undeniable. Does, I know it psychologically. I do think it does help players, seeing a sea of 17,000 versus seeing a scattered crowd of 1,700. It just feels the way you felt growing up as much as it can. Uh, I, I think they're going to benefit from that. Uh, whether that shakes out in a couple extra wins against top 25 teams, I don't know. But I think they are going to see the biggest jump in how they played at home last year versus how they'll play this season. Mm. Okay. Last thing, and we'll wrap up here, Will. Um what team do you believe benefits most by having a full crowd? Like one team, just one. Can be Arkansas, can be Tennessee, Memphis with their crazy court that I very much like, even though it gives me kind of a headache. Um, Georgia, can't hurt. Yeah. Back in Stegman. Yeah, let's do it. And it's going to be great. Crowd? Wait, we'll, say that one more time. Crowd at a Georgia basketball game. <laughs> I've been to a many Georgia basketball games in my my lifetime growing up at uh in the state of georgia but no it's not a not a great uh not a great situation i would say from a from a fan base thing yeah 
So, I mean, West Virginia is kind of still my pick here, mm. but there are a couple sort of ones that I wouldn't say I have. But you're saying West lot. Virginia number one overall, like they will benefit the yeah. most of all college basketball teams. Okay. Yeah. But there, there are a couple more that I think are genuinely ones that I can't wait to see the full crowds back at. One is Utah State. Mm. I think of all of the you know loosely defined mid-major schools, no school has a more fun home crowd for big games even more so than San Diego State, who has a great one, too. But Utah State, that student section just seems so fun when they're rolling. Like, I really wish they could have had the full crowds this past season when they were the 11th seed. Like, they were a legit good team playing legitimately good games at home. They really could have used the full crowd. Uh, But along with that, I'm ready to see what it looks like when these Michigan players get a home crowd uh, of like a full group back. And the thing I want most aside from obviously being biased to Tennessee, you know, 22,000 sellout. Mm. I want to see just once. And, you know, this is on them to perform up, but if Syracuse, I haven't looked to to see like what the ACC opponents are this year. If Syracuse is able to get Duke at home, Mm. I cannot wait to see, 30,000 plus people in a dome again watching Syracuse play basketball. When those games are packed and when they're the Saturday night game on ESPN, it is really hard to beat as just a fan of basketball. I agree. I agree. And also just Duke UNC being back full, full capacity. Cause that was weird. That was, that was weird. Really underrated. uh, In fact, probably number two objectively behind West Virginia of teams that would benefit most by having the crowd back. I know like they struggled for other reasons last year, but just by them having like the fans two inches away from the inbounder, that really, I think that really does provide like psychological help for the players. I agree. I agree. Uh, Will, what would you like to plug as we wrap up here tonight? Got a big piece coming, I think noon, Eastern, 9 Pacific, Friday on statsbubble.com. Did you say new? Oh, never mind. I just went full, like my brain. This is 8.20 at night. Never mind. I'm losing my mind. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. or 9 a.m. Pacific on a Friday. Got a big piece I've been working on for three weeks about the role of the mid-range jumper in today's college basketball. How much is too much? What players would you want to take them uh, what teams actually have sustainably done well at hitting them, uh, and how much your so- your shot selection matters from a rim mid range three division perspective, aka you know why a lot of teams are going to be adopting this Alabama Mori Ball model. Hmm. All right. Well, go check that out. Follow you on Twitter at Stats by Will. Go check out StatsbyWill.com if you have not already done so. It's a great website. Will does great work, and he will be here every single wednesday night on this very podcast uh will stay safe out there and i will see you tomorrow yes i can't wait (laughs) all right hello the wednesday edition of the chase thomas podcast rolls along where i am now joined as i am every single wednesday by my good friend fangraph's own john taylor john good afternoon sir how are you uh thankfully not haunted as apparently you are (laughs) well the dog khaleesi is behind me at the moment and i thought it might be her but she's she's moved away from from the mega bed that she has in in my studio and um 
she it's not her she has passed the passed the fuck out as the kids say so i don't think it's her but i did hear this sawing type noise and you claim you claim john to not be not be the the person responsible yeah i i mean i i reject all these scurrilous accusations Mm. have you found out where you got uh that t-shirt yet from which t-shirt the uh which t-shirt which t-shirt he says it's not a t-shirt it's not a t-shirt okay yeah that's true which shirt but yes um so a friend sent it to me many moons ago and i thought i had saved the photo for it oh wait actually no that's not um i thought i had saved the photo from it but turns out uh no i can't find it anymore and I've also messed up the display viewing option for my photos somehow. Oh, here we go. No, just all photos. Uh, but suffice to say, it was from a random sports website that I had never heard of before. Not even really a sports website, just a random apparel website where all they sold were shirts with generic logos on them, like in patterns. And I've never heard of the company before that made it. They sent it, it it took three and a half weeks to ship from some random factory in China in some random Chinese town. And I honestly can't find the website for it anymore. I'm pretty sure the website for it might have disappeared. Hmm. I'll find something similar. I I will find something. Did you get any comments when you were at City Field wearing this scarf? Amazingly, no. Just from people I was buying beer from. What did they say? What was the... They They liked the shirt. Okay. You were like, I actually prefer all of my baseball teams. I'm a super fan of everybody. Yes. Mm, I like it. I yes, like it. that's the thing. I, I am an equal opportunity lover and an equal opportunity hater. Mm, the Rob Lowe hate, 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 hate. of the Chase Thomas podcast, John Taylor. Yeah, wait. Well, without the all the like creepy stuff that Rob Lowe has done, I guess. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, ideally without that. Um... Post, uh, <laughs> post uh, Parks and Rec Rob Lowe. Is that how we're clarifying? Sure. I don't know. I Mark Lowe. Or Mark Lowe. Um, <laughs> Mark just Lowe got is, baseball in the brain at all times. I think I just made up a ranger. Or is a that ranger. not a? Is that um, not one of the lows? There's well, Brandon. There was Brandon Lau and Nate Lowe, who's now on the Rangers, and then mm. there's Josh Lowe. I think somewhere in the race system. But I love not it. A Mark Lowe. I think I, there might have been a Mark Lowe at some point in baseball because it's not an uncommon name, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's some some beef stewing in New York, your neck of the woods. Luke Voigt, Anthony Rizzo, both believe they should get a lot of opportunities on this Yankees playoff run. What do you make of Luke Voigt being like, hey, I'm a person too. I deserve this spot. Luke Voigt is a person too. Um, People forget. And that's the thing. Like it's, it's, this is one of those arguments where it's like, can you really blame Voigt for saying, hey, that starting role I had on a playoff team and the biggest city in the country i would like to re- i would like to return to that starting role on a playoff team in the biggest city in the country the one where i was hitting home runs like like crazy and was basically the like the best power threat on that team not named aaron judge yeah if i were him i'd be pretty pissed off that all it took for me to lose my job was an injury that wasn't my fault and like three bad weeks of results post a second injury re- suffered while rehabbing the first injury or while trying to come back from the first injury rather and that's all it took for him to lose his job and on the one hand, obviously, you sympathize with Voigt, who has gotten kind of a bad break in this. You know, 
for whatever reason he's struggling, it's probably a safe bet that the combination of the foot injury he had last year, the knee injury he suffered at the start of this year, and the oblique strain he suffered while rehabbing, or once he came back from the knee injury, pretty safe to say all three of those are probably having some kind of impact on his season. Not to mention uh, just the weirdness of everything 2020, pandemic, and coming back into this season and all that. So yeah, it really sucks for, for Voight, obviously. That said, it's completely understandable why the Yankees did what they did. They had a giant hole at first base that Voight was not filling. They needed help. They needed left-handed help in particular. I know we've talked about that a few times. Uh, Rizzo made perfect sense for them as an available rental who is not going to block anyone long-term, which I think is still the thing is that barring something strange here, barring some change of, of feelings or fortune uh, in the offseason, it's pretty likely that Luke Voigt, if he makes it through the season you know, without losing the faith of everyone in the New York Yankees front office, probably starts next year as the New York Yankees first baseman. They don't really have a better in-house option. And so I, I think that for as much as he can be frustrated about, yes, it's my job, I want my job back, essentially, you know, assuming the Yankees don't go to a strict platoon when Rizzo comes back and that they just make him the regular starter. Yeah, I can understand. I'd be frustrated too if I were one. But he's, he is the victim of his injuries and he is the victim of a roster that despite getting better and more flexible at the deadline, still is really crowded at that first base DH corner outfield spot. And obviously it doesn't help that they have a guy in Giancarlo Stanton who seemingly can barely play the outfield. Uh, they have a guy in Aaron Judge who can't stay healthy and ideally needs the DH to stay in that role. So really, I mean, this would not be a problem if the Yankees did not have the combination of Giancarlo Stanton, Joey Gallo, Aaron Rizzo, and Aaron Judge all in the lineup at the same time. Otherwise, there is room for Voight. And so this is, I think, a temporary, I mean, obviously a temporary kind of block. As to how to make it work, I genuinely don't know. It just makes me glad I'm not Aaron Boone because he is going to have to find some way to rotate Voight, Rizzo, Stanton, and Gallo between left and DH. I assume that right field is just judges unless he can't play it. So I don't know how you do that. That's four guys for two positions. Um, not helped by the fact Stanton takes 85%, not, no, not 85, I don't think he's played more than five innings in the outfield this year, takes 100% of the at-bats at DH. So really, you have one spot for two guys in Rizzo and Voigt. I don't know if it makes sense to go to a pure platoon there. I imagine that it'll probably just be some kind of 50-50 timeshare, depending on who's on the mound for both the Yankees and the opposition, where they are, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. It stinks for Voigt, but the good news is for him, as long as he doesn't make too big of a stink about this or get hurt again uh, down the stretch. First base should be his back again next year, assuming the Yankees don't feel like they need to upgrade on him, which I, I kind of doubt because even even with his struggles this season, he is still pretty cheap. So, And the Yankees being cost-conscious as they now are, I, I have to imagine they're just going to let uh, let, Voight, let Voight get another chance fully healthy in 2022, and if they need to readjust, they'll readjust. Hmm. Well, there's also another situation going on in New York, and this just stinks because I, I knew the kid growing up and um, have seen him at a Gwinnett Mall or two, Georgia Mall or two, and uh, Clint Frazier, Aaron Boone, speaking candidly about him, was just uh, very unsure if Clint Frazier is ever playing baseball again. We've gotten to that point now, which is just, whew, it's brutal, and this seems to all still stem from that collision he had, what was that, two years ago now? Yeah, like, and that's that's kind of the scary thing with concussions and head injuries is you never know when you're fully over the hill from them. The results can, the results and the trauma and the injuries from them can hang around for indefinitely, can spring up again out of nowhere because it's 
it's a very it's those are tricky things concussions are literally brain injuries and i think this would be i'm not i don't think there's anyone out there who's currently feeling like why isn't clint frazier playing why is he not back yet i mean i imagine most yankees fans who if they think about clint frazier at all probably are just annoyed that he had such a bad season and is now gone but i think what you know if 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 clint frazier's injury were described less as he's having trouble with his vision or whatever. They just said straight up, like as if the NFL, instead of saying concussion, they said he has a brain injury. His brain is hurt. It does not work the way it is supposed to right now. Not only would I think that make it a lot more clear, but I think people would be a lot more understanding of the idea that, oh yeah, if he has a brain injury, he probably can't play baseball. You know, that's, that's not something that really lets you take do the sport easily. It's, it's a real shame for Frazier, who is very talented, a very good player. I don't know necessarily how he was going to fit in with the Yankees going forward, but obviously that's not the biggest thing here. Been, certainly his loss hurts them now in particular um, because of them having to play Brett Gardner every day, every day. Although for what it's worth, Frazier's not a center fielder. He's a corner outfielder. Uh, it basically just meant he's really a DH. Joey Gallo. Yeah, really he's a DH, but um, it, it's terrible for Frazier. I hope he gets better, but yeah, it's, it's really one of those things where the, the issue is, as much for the Yankees beyond the injuries they've suffered is the injuries to the depth that they've suffered. When you talk about guys like Frazier or when you talk about guys like uh, like a lot of their young pitching depth in the minors that has been in and out with injuries or their bullpen guys have been hurt. It's Those injuries just as much as the top level ones have, have really done a lot of damage. So, And Frazier's just another example. Even if he's not a starter, he's a useful bat off the bench. He's a great platoon piece. He, you know, he's some power that you can deploy in reserve. He helps, he helps give guys off, which is very important. He really would have been useful when Aaron Judge was both hurt and then on the COVID IL, that's for sure. But yeah, you just, you just have to hope for the best for him and that he can get back and get himself back on the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but we'll see. Thoughts with Clint Frazier. Um, but yeah. Uh, John. We're going to yes. stay with this somber, somber notes okay. because okay. Um, you're somber. not going to believe this. I'm not. A Major League Baseball broadcaster messed up live on the air. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. We can't get through one full year without uh, somebody in the booth really showing their ass. And, uh, Just waggling it all over the place. I, I think the apology bothered me more. We're, you think so? I, I think but it bothered you, me so more. People are, just so people are clear, we're talking about Jack Morris. We are talking about Jack Morris on Shohei okay. Otani, and he okay. did the voice. I'm not gonna do the voice. Um, it was racist. It was shitty. But then they come back, and he's just like making it seem like he he's confused as to what happened there. It was like one of those. So I, I have no interest in giving Jack Morris the benefit of the doubt. Because I was Morris going to until the apology where I'm like, okay, whatever you, you give somebody a shot. And then you listen to when they come back and you're like, Oh, they don't get it at all. This is bad. And that's, like, and that's kind of the thing. Like I will give the tiniest benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. that in Jack Morris's head, the voice he was doing, maybe, was it some attempt at being some kind of Elmer Fudd voice in terms of like the, you know, the way Elmer Fudd says, be very, very careful of hunting wabbits or whatever the exact line is. Cause Morris said something more or less along the lines of that in whatever accent he was trying to do. If you want to be generous, you could say, okay, he was trying to do an Elmer Fudd thing. He didn't realize how close that sounded to, to an insulting, like made up Asian accent. Mm-hmm. Maybe. 
But like you said, the apology just suggests that he doesn't even understand that that's a thing that could have happened or that maybe even if he wasn't intending to be offensive, maybe even if he was entirely going for the Elmer Fudd thing, maybe just think for a minute and like, boy, that sounds like a caricature of an Asian person. It doesn't really sound like Elmer Fudd. Maybe even just say at that point, hey, what I was trying to do is this, but I understand it came out like that. And that was obviously not my intent. And I am sorry. You know what? That's a really easy apology. I just did it right there and I didn't even do anything wrong. That's how easy that apology is to do. Explain what happened. And it's not even in an ideally not in a defensive way. You just say, here's what I was saying. I understand that it was it came out wrong. That's my fault. You have to accept the fault. You have to apologize and say, I will do better next time. Maybe that would have kept him from being suspended. I don't know. But at the very least, it would have showed some sign of, oops, I screwed up and I get it. And that's kind of the thing you see with everything, and not just Jack Morris, but anytime one of these announcers, and of course, Tom Brenneman's always the gold standard here, and I guess Jack Morris should just be lucky that they weren't playing the Reds, that Nick Castellanos wasn't a bat. But I was going to say, they weren't playing the Reds, right? And I was like, no, the universe isn't that great. Um, <laughs> but all, what, what, what these announcers get is, I screwed up. What they don't understand, the back part is, and I get it. None of them ever really show any understanding of why what they said was wrong or how that, you know, how it was offensive or even just the basic idea that that huge crucial difference between the apologies that say I'm sorry and the apologies they say I'm sorry if you were offended, which obviously takes all of puts all of the onus on the person who was hurt to make up the difference, so to speak. Instead of just accepting, hey, I screwed up, and I understand why, and I'm sorry, and just leave it at that. And that's. But the other thing is, I don't want to give Jack Morris the benefit of the doubt because he doesn't deserve it. Nothing he has done in his professional life, in a, a life full of rank instances of bigotry and misogyny, suggests that I should, that I should think Jack Morris had anything other than mind than being adult racist toward the best player in baseball currently. And that alone, to me, that alone, as much as I don't want to sound like that Brita bit from community about I can excuse racism, but animal cruelty is where I draw the line. The fact that Jack Morris said something racist or at least racially insensitive should surprise literally no one. That's what you should expect every time Jack Morris opens his mouth is something that's just going to make you cringe because that's who he is. He is an old, white, conservative ball player. No, they don't do. They don't have anything in their heads other than baseball and racism. That's just what's going to come out when they open their mouths, and it's a roll of the dice as to how offensive it's going to be when it happens. To me, what kind of stands out is, is this, it's beyond what Morris said, which is just stupid and 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 just insensitive, and just further illustrating just all the various ways in which you know Asian people in this country and and generally speaking are just the 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 targets of just the most kind of like stupid racism where it's racism where the person isn't even like doesn't even i don't know i'm getting a little into the weeds here but regardless regardless of the of the content of what of what morris said and what he was going for and blah 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 just the fact that that's the way he wants to talk about shohei otani this is the best player on the planet right now who's doing things that no player has done in a century and this dude is just like chinese accent or whatever come on man like how is baseball not better than this and I don't even mean in regards of like the racial stuff. I just mean in regards of just simply as a product to consume as a as a as a viewer. This is what you get if you're a Detroit Tigers fan. This old grumpy fart making dumb jokes on the broadcast as opposed to like 
I don't, he doesn't need to be standing there waving flags in the air, being show, being like, Shohei Otani is the greatest player who's ever lived, and I am a mere peon in his presence. Although, really, Jack Morris is a mere peon in Otani's presence. One of the worst Hall of Famers ever. But man, wouldn't it be nice to get broadcasts that instead of just doing tired nonsense like this, actually are like, hey, here's Shohei Otani. He's a lot of fun. You know, he's great. What a great symbol for baseball he is. What a great symbol for international baseball he is. What an inspiration he probably is, or at least can be, to children of all races across the entire world, that you can do this too if you happen to be genetically gifted like a, you know, mutant. Regardless, it's just, it's tired. It's so tired with baseball at this point that they just keep trotting these losers like Jack Morris out there and Goose Gossage and John Smoltz. I shouldn't be so harsh on Smoltz, but that same vibe of just perpetual grumpiness and... This just total, like, I don't want to call it a disregard for the for the game as it is, but just this disinterest, seemingly, in it, where everything around them is just some kind of joke. You know, because it's not the way they play baseball and blah, blah. You know, I, I know this that, that Morris's thing wasn't a, wasn't about a back-in-my-day type of thing, but it perpetually is a back-in-my-day thing with him because he is incapable of seeing the world except from where he currently occupies it, which is somewhere, somewhere between 1986 and 1992. He hasn't moved on from that portion of his life. He never will. He will always be that old fart Jack Morris. He is never going to improve. And that's kind of the thing that just gets me in the end. It's just this stubborn laziness on the part of baseball, on the part of baseball teams, on the part of everyone involved with the sport in some capacity to just let these guys hang out forever simply because they did something a million years ago that no one – no one cares about right now. It's too harsh. But just because they did, just because they happened to be on the team a million years ago, or in Jack Morris's case, because the the dustiest segment of the BBWAA refused to give up on the fact that he was one of the most mediocre pitchers of his generation, to say nothing of ever, and he just gets to open his mouth and blab whatever he wants, whenever he feels like it, despite the fact that his baseball knowledge, experience, and existence hasn't appreciably changed or improved in about three decades. And I think that's the part where just think of all the fun, exciting, diverse interesting voices who are out there who could be saying cool stuff about baseball on broadcast all the time if you would just get rid of dinosaurs like jack morris enough please no more of them i'm tired of them i don't want to have keep having the same conversation every seemingly three weeks about the latest old boomer idiot to say something racist or claim that baseball is not fun or baseball was better back in my day blah 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 nobody cares go away please i just this that's there's any one kind of standout message for, for the Jack Morrises of the world says, go away. No one wants you around anymore. No one. No one wants to hear what you think. No one ever cared what you think. And especially nowadays, the the amount of patience I have even to have to hear what a guy like Jack Morris has to say is zero. I don't care anymore. Enough. I'm glad he got suspended. I hope that the Tigers quietly push him out over the course of the offseason, and that's that. And I hope no other team or radio station or whoever – is stupid enough to think, hey, let's hear what the old, out-of-touch moron has to think about a sport that no longer resembles the one he even played anymore. Good riddance, ultimately. Man, that got hot toward the end. How are you feeling? <sighs> a little bit better. It's just, between this and, like, I know the Barstool stuff isn't directly related, but it's just em- so emblematic of a league that just doesn't seem to understand that it has a fan base beyond, like, white dudes. And that's just I, I just don't know when that changes. I don't know when the league is finally going to wake up and be like, we have a diverse fan base that we need to cater to beyond the old white guys. 
You saw that too with the Field of Dreams game, which, and I know we're, we're probably going to disagree on this to a certain degree. I know you literally like the Field of Dreams game. I'm not going to lie. I tuned in. The visuals were cool. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed for, and I, I can't explain why I found it funny that home run balls just disappeared into the corn and they're just gone forever. I really like the idea of like team staffers having to comb through the cornfield later trying to find baseballs. Mm-hmm. But to me, the whole thing just felt so emblematic of who MLB considers its main audience to be. And it's people who enjoyed Field of Dreams, which is to say your dad. MLB is always marketing toward your dad. And if it's not marketing toward your dad, it's marketing toward hmm, it's marketing toward that really annoying coworker you don't like who has a lot of loud opinions about the sport but can never back them up. Hmm. And who only like 60% of his jokes are funny. And the ones that aren't funny, and there's always this thin thread of like misogyny and like bigotry kind of hanging on the underneath. I I mean, I'm just describing MLB just markets toward white men. Some things they market toward older white men. Some things like the bar, like the potential barstool partnership, they market toward younger white men. But the primary audience they market to is white men. And I understand it. White men are the biggest audience for Major League Baseball. They just are. You look at the numbers, that's who's watching Major League Baseball games and that's who's attending them. Fine, so be it. You can't just ignore them entirely, but they don't have to be the center pl- the center of your marketing strategy. That's what I find so frustrating about the Field of Dreams game. It's, it, it was so focused on Field of Dreams, a 30-year-old movie that how many millennials have even watched, much less enjoy, much less remember? I have seen Field of Dreams one or two times. I think it is a fine movie, but I have no particularly fond feelings toward it, and I have no real interest in really even acknowledging that it exists anymore. It's just a film and, and I guess a book that was the book the film was based on. My bigger we... thing was that it was just something like the ratings showed this, that it popped a crazy rating and baseball needs to be more aggressive in finding those weekly games outside of like just assuming that people tune into Sunday Night Baseball every now and then or watch the Saturday afternoon game on Fox, but like do things to try and get people on a national scale because major league baseball is a regional sport in the regular season now. So whatever you can do to fix that and alleviate that from the people who are like the small, small number that are watching MLB TV, like you and I, where we're watching different teams all year, but like the majority, like 90, what 95 plus percent are only watching their team until the postseason. that like, whatever you can do to try and pop those numbers and to get new eyeballs in the sport from people that, may not see the White Sox all season or may not see, I guess the Yankees would not be a good example of this, but like this is the kind of thing that you do to kind of energize fans uh, through a, a long 162 game season. So it's less about field of dreams for me, more just do stuff, try things out, see what sticks, see what uh, the fans want. And you can see that by ratings. And this was clearly something that major league baseball fans enjoyed the ending was perfect. I do think it was hilarious that Tim Anderson was like, <laughs> I think he was on Lebitard's show uh, this week. And he was, he, I think they asked him like what, if he's watching other teams or anything like that. And he was just like, no, baseball's boring. And it was just like, this is the kind of stuff that you've got to, you got to do something about. You got to, you got to try stuff out. You got to see how you can market to younger people. You got to stop marketing to the Jack Morris era folks and start marketing or start thinking about how you can get those young people and get those people to tune in and feel the dreams like you said is an older baseball movie but 
there are younger ways to do this. There are other avenues to get fans involved on a national scale, at least once every now and then. Like it's the same thing with NHL, right? Like you, we, we yes, remember it's those classic. Yeah. Like those are the things that you need to be trying because it, that just gets more eyeballs on your sport. So I think that kind of stuff and I'm I, okay I with. Think, and I, I don't disagree with that. I think my frustration for one is that MLB wants to do this again next year, but they want to do it once again in Iowa. So they seem to have taken the wrong message from this, which is not that people, yes, like, and I agree with what you're saying. MLB should have more of these kind of national events in special places that are unique at special times, you know, to give, give a little different flavor. Cause like you said, this is a sport that it's national, it's national spotlight. That isn't the postseason. It's basically one game a week on ESPN that thanks to the announcer combo is borderline unlistenable. So that also really not a, that's a whole separate topic, but it really cannot be said how much damage I think is being done to major league baseball by the fact that it's, it's marquee broadcast is in the hands of one of its worst play by play guys and a color guy in Alex Rodriguez who nine times out of 10 doesn't know how the sentence he's saying is going to end. <laughs> it, it really is a problem for ESPN that they just have these two guys on this broadcast and I'm, I, know, I know I'm not alone on this. You, you see other people on the internet. It's on Twitter. A lot of people talk about, I watch Sunday Night Baseball on mute. That's what I do. That's what I have to do because I cannot stand that broadcast. But regard, that's, that's, a, that's a me and a, and a person-specific problem. But to the things you're speaking to, it would be cool to see a winter classic type thing where it's just like do it in different – it doesn't even have to be nationally. Like we could, we could have ideally you know, that, that pregame series that happens in Montreal featuring the Blue Jays. I know that the Olympic Stadium is in a really did, like dire state and is not meant for for like sustained play, but one series there in the summer wouldn't would that be the worst thing? Now that Canada is back to or now that we can actually go back to Canada, see like series in Puerto Rico, in in, in the Dominican Republic, in Mexico, yes. in other places, like spread the game out, recognize the fact that you don't even have to go international, play a game. You know, find figure out some sandlot construction you can yeah. do in some major American city. Play a game outside in California. Play a game in a national park. Laws withstanding. There's so many, theoretically, at least cool things you could do. Play a game on an aircraft carrier for all I care. Remember that college basketball game they played on an aircraft carrier? Yes. That was cool as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to know what would have happened if the ball had gone over the side of the boat, but I, I don't think that ended up happening. Um, but it just that it's, it's, it's so predictable though, that what MLB took out of this is people like the field of dreams game. We need to play the, the exact field of dreams game every year. That I don't think is what people want. That's what a small subset of MLB's viewing public wants because they like the cornfields and they like field of dreams and they like the whole goofy, again, kind of boomer nostalgia mythos behind it. But for the rest of us, like, I don't care. I'm not going to tune into that game next year automatically just because it happens to be in a cornfield. I've seen that now. I would like something different. I would like something where Kevin Costner is not going to spend two innings in the broadcast just talking about the making of Field of Dreams. A movie or cosplaying as his about. character. And or maybe cosplaying that was, as his character. That was weird. That's, it's, it's weird. It, it's appealing to this very narrow segment of the baseball watching public that finds that stuff fun. And maybe maybe that's wrong. Maybe I'm just not fun when it comes to baseball. But I just think they're – I don't know. I, I just wish the sport would make more of a point of, of playing of, – of appealing not just to younger viewers but to a diverse viewing group to women to people of color to uh the gay the lesbian there's what's the best way to put this the, the let's just say the queer community in general there are so many fans of so many different stripes out there now more than ever and it just feels more and more like baseball just kind of looks at them and goes well you don't really have a choice if you want to watch baseball so 
hope you like Barstool. Like that, that's just how it turns out. They just seem to take those people for granted or just assume, well, you're stuck with us anyway, because we're just going to keep marketing to the group that we know is biggest and has the most money. You guys just happen to be along for the ride. And I really wish MLB would change that priority because the truth of it is the old white folks are the ones who are not going anywhere. They're going to keep watching baseball until their eyes fall out of their head. If they love their team, they're not going anywhere unless they're performative uh, MAGA chuds who want to give up sports and food groups and and Keurig machines, depending on whether or not it's owning the libs to do it. But those people are hopeless and unreachable anyway. The fans you are risking losing out on forever are the ones now, the ones who are in their teens and their 20s, who don't care about Field of Dreams and who hate Barstool and who heard the Jack Morris thing and went, what's wrong with that guy? And then see a league that kind of just throws its shoulders up and go, well, you just keep eating the slop, you know, just keep keep going. What are we going to do for you? You'll get a pride day. You get one pride day. Use it well. Uh, what do you get if you're a black fan? You get Jackie Robinson Day. And that's it. What do you get if you're a Hispanic fan or a Latino fan? Honestly, nothing. We don't even get recognized. We don't even get noticed. We just exist. I, I think we, I mean, I know there is Spanish language MLB marketing and, and advertising and whatnot, but where is, where is the Field of Dreams game for brown people? Where is the Field of Dream game, Dreams game? And that's not to say Field of Dreams is only for white people. But a game held in Iowa, one of the whitest states in the country, <laughs> does not really represent... Uh, especially when you looked diverse. at the, the crowd. I don't know if and you especially looked... when you looked at the crowd. Yeah. And especially when you look at the fact that, again, they're celebrating a 30-year-old movie about a, a that is basically just a, a boomer sports Bible piece. Like it is, it is not a movie that that resonates it with or is relevant to really anyone under the age of fifty. Well, let's say forty, but even really forty. If you're forty years old, that means you saw Field of Dreams when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have some positive association with it because baseball. But at the same time, like it always felt to me like the the, the biggest group of fans for Field of Dreams were dads. Because that whole movie is about a dad and his relationship with his father and how it all just plays out through ghosts, if you really think about it. Like, it's just not something that represents the future. And I think MLB just remains so stuck, not just in its own present, but its past, that it doesn't really see what the future looks like. Or even worse, it thinks that the future is the loud, racist, misogynist gamblers. And, and part it thinks that's the future because that's the most money-making part of the future. Gambling makes money, and that's all MLB cares about under Rob Manfred. But it, it just feels like there is not someone near enough to the top in Major League Baseball to kind of raise their hand and go, what are we doing for everyone who isn't a white dude? Because well, if you, I think if you really look at what is MLB doing for everyone that isn't a white dude in terms of presenting the sport and packaging the sport and, and sharing the sport – the answer is not a whole lot. It just feels like crumbs. It always feels like crumbs. And the Jack Morris stuff, the Barstool stuff, the Field of Dreams stuff, and maybe not so much the Field of Dreams stuff because that was genuinely MLB trying to do something different and then missing the point. Regardless, it just always feels like crumbs. And I wish the sport took a more active, better path towards shaping the future of baseball as opposed to letting its past dictate whatever's going to come next. Because it's funny. You mentioned the Field of Dreams game, you met, and, we, and, we, and we compared it to the Winter Classic, which I think is a sensible comparison. Because, and part of this is MLB doesn't, can't really do the same thing that, say, the NBA and the NFL does, 
or do where they have national holidays that they can put games on and be like, hey, you got nothing else to do. You're inside with your family. Let's watch Lakers Nets or whatever happens to be. And the closest baseball gets is July 4th, and that's a holiday everyone spends outside. You know, there, There's not a whole lot you can do with that, and that's just the unfortunate reality of the calendar. But So I, I do like the idea of making appointment television, but when, it's funny, when you mention the Winter Classic and when you mention that MLB is becoming seemingly more and more of a regional sport, it just makes me worry that the future of baseball is the NHL. And the NHL, for as much as there are good players in the league and good team and good and good teams and all that fun stuff, and for as much as they do have devoted fans, is easily the smallest, least impactful, least important, and generally the most ignorable of the four major uh, U.S. sports. To the point where at this point, like I honestly do wonder who has more fans at this point, MLS or, NA, or the NHL. The NHL is a is a it's a it's a totally minor sport at this point. It is a peripheral sport, and it is never again. It never was, but it will never be anyone's focus in this country. Never. It's just simply too small, and it just simply it almost it almost just embraced that. I don't know. I feel like I'm talking a little too much about the NHL, which is not something I know about. But it just worries me that, that baseball's future is the NHL uh, on, on a, a small. I don't know. I just don't want baseball to turn into hockey. I don't want. This isn't even about hockey, which I, I find is a perfectly fine sport. I just find that the whole aura of the NHL is just so pathetic and lame that I don't want that to become baseball's future because hockey is a sport that caters to a small white fan base regionally and that is stuck in the past in terms of its in terms of its culture and the way it presents itself. I really don't want baseball to fall down that same path. John Taylor's on fire today. Ooh, I got some takes. Yeah, on didn't fire. Then those came out. Then those existed. Do, do you even have anything left for Jake Garriette on the on the the Padres or George Springer well, left, not being able to he, stay healthy in Toronto. Uh, Arietta left today's game with a trainer, so I assume he's hurt again. Mm. So, I mean, San Diego's problem is bigger than Jake Arietta. Jake Arietta is emblematic of San Diego's problems, but he particularly, specifically, personally, does not seem to be a problem at this moment. Who's More starting their wild card the, game? Joe Musgrove. Okay. Yeah, it's it's. Re- I think I think the thing with I mean, Arietta was awful today, but you should have expected that, and he left apparently hurt, so that's probably it. I, I think the thing you have to, for sure, the Padres thing at this point are done in the division. They are eleven games back at this point. If they lose today, I think they're eleven and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- whatever it is, they well, are, it doesn't they help that the Dodgers and the the Giants have won like nine and ten. Yes, the Giants have won three in a row. The Dodgers have won five in a row. Both teams are nine and one in their last ten. San Diego is twelve games out of first place. If they lose today and the Giants win again, they'll be 13 games back. 13 back halfway through August is pretty much a death sentence, especially with the Dodgers in between them, too. The Padres at this point are pretty much wild card or bust. The good news for them is that the second wild card spot, their only real competition right now is Cincinnati, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you feel about the staying power of Philadelphia. Well, hold on. The Cardinals and, won and 8 of 10. This is the other one I was going to say. Not only are the Cardinals still in this picture, too. But a lot of their upcoming games are against the Pirates and the Royals. So if you see the Cardinals in the next two weeks suddenly pulling into that wild card picture, that's a big reason why. In in a similar vein, and this is something if you want to get more in depth about what's behind San Diego's issues, Ben Clements wrote about it for Fangraphs and kind of went through their little losing streak recently, or their little stumble uh, to kind of explain you know why their odds are now in such a perilous state. San Diego like wasted a lot of games in these last two weeks against Arizona, Colorado, and Miami. Those are three last place teams. Or well, Miami was last place, and the Nationals now are last. Regardless, three rebuilding teams, including one outright, two outright tanking teams in the pod in the Pirates and, and Diamondbacks. 
And they, they barely went 500 against them if they went 500 at all. And that was their easiest stretch left of the season. The Pirates have a rough, they're play, they have to play a roughly 540 schedule the rest of the way, which is by winning percentage, roughly the equivalent of playing the, uh, well, basically it's the equivalent of playing this season's Padres or this season's Blue Jays for the rest of the season. That's not great. It's really, really not great. San Diego is in a lot of trouble. Jake Arrieta obviously wasn't going to solve any of that, but yeah. The Padres, they are lucky that their only real competition is Cincinnati, St. Louis, and maybe Philadelphia or the Mets. But they really need to get it turned around fast because they they have already lost the division at this point. I think that is safe to say that's gone. Now it's a question of whether or not they can hang on to that wild card spot. And then the question becomes, boy, the fun of, great, we've won the second wild card. Now to go to L.A. to face Max Scherzer in a win-or-go-home playoff game. <laughs> well, not that. They're not. The Dodgers, uh, I mean, that, 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 that seems... AJ Preller must be ready to tear his own hair out. <sighs> I mean, at the same time, it's not a disaster. Like, injuries are part of no, the game. No, no, like, no, He didn't do anything wrong. Make this sound like the, no, the Padres, if the Padres could do their offseason all over again, I think they would do the exact same thing. I think the only thing they would change at this point in terms of the moves they've made or haven't is they might have gotten a little more aggressive at the trade deadline to get either some more pitching help or to have a shortstop ready to go for Fernando Tatis's injury. But, of course, they couldn't have seen that coming. It's just their bad luck that Tatis happened to hurt his shoulder again basically about a day or two after the deadline, so there was nothing they could do about it. This was, you know, this we, we've given the Padres a lot of kudos uh, both in the offseason and since the start of the year at, at going for it. And they did go for it. I mean... The problem is that their, their moves just haven't particularly worked out. Blake Snell has not worked out. Mike Clevenger obviously blew out his elbow before he really got a chance to do anything in San Diego. You know, the the, the depth they had eroded pretty quickly thanks to injuries. Uh, the hot, the Eric Hosmer deal really... I, I, I compared it at the time to the Jason Worth signing uh, more about the what it signified than what it actually would mean or what it would actually accomplish on the field for San Diego. I still stand by that, but even, but even Worth had been more productive i think up to this point than hosmer had hosmer is just a mess of a player at this point and is really dragging things down it, it, it's not great in san diego but you're right this isn't a disaster and if the if the worst of this if the worst result of this Padres season is a second place wild card finish and getting one and done in the postseason they'll be back next year and they'll be fine they're still going to have pretty much everyone they have now i haven't looked at their current list of free agents but i don't think they have anyone major coming they still have a very good farm system, even after all the guys they've traded. Uh, they obviously still have a very active and very uh, creative general manager in AJ Preller. They have an ownership that seems ready and willing to spend. And I highly doubt this is a Jeffrey Loria Marlins situation where the where the Padres are going to make one big move and then after if it falls apart, go ah well and then sell it all off. That's not what's happening here. I don't think this is the beginning of the end for San Diego. I just think that yeah, it, it's it's just definitely a bad stretch for them, and it pretty much. It's a stretch that has more or less cost them any real division hopes. So it is what it is for San Diego. Now you just have to hope that they can hold on and and keep that post and keep that wild card spot because I think we're all in agreement. Aside from your listeners in Missouri, no more Cardinals in the playoffs. No more Cardinals in the playoffs, please. No more. I, I sympathize with Nolan Arenado. I really do. I want to see as long him as they don't play the Braves, well. especially when they play the Braves, because that um, leave the memories alone. I, I don't know if we can do I, another. Another I think series, a Dodgers Cardinals wild card game would send a lot of Dodgers fans to the to like to the hospital. They are terrified of that franchise, and with good reason. I mean, they just want a title. 
They did. I'm, I'm you just won a title. That if I were a Dodgers fan, I'd be like on pins and needles. Why? Just you just won. You have the best having, franchise in baseball. Knowing, knowing Dodgers fans, in particular how they feel about the Cardinals, those Cardinals are those feelings are very negative. Really, it's 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 got to be fun for Dodgers fans. You know, if they either get a, an NLS grudge match with a Padres team, then fan base that really doesn't like them. Or in our wild card game, it's a Cardinals franchise that has stabbed them in the hearts like eight times in the last 20 years. So, you know, pros and cons. Or they could just get the Reds. Yeah. Which that's true. I, I love that. I'd love it. Honestly, a Dodgers Reds game would be great, but I would love that there's just no natural storyline to that. It's just Dodgers Reds. <laughs> it's just Dodgers Reds. That should just be the tagline for the wildcard game Dodgers, Reds. Dodgers, <laughs> Reds. That's it. I mean,. It would be fun, though. I would enjoy it. It would be. I mean, Castellanos yeah, Cast- needs to be healthy Luis- for that. Luis Castillo against Max Scherzer. Nick Castellanos back-breaking homers. Jonathan India doing it. some stuff. I'm sorry? Jonathan India doing some stuff. Jonathan India doing some stuff. Great, great, great. The great Jonathan India. Fantastic mm-hmm. leadoff hitter there. I'm okay with it. Two outfielders, yeah. all-star outfielders. That'd be a good look. That'd be a good look. Yeah, that'd be fun. John Taylor, what can we check out from yes. you and the good folks at Fangraphs this week? Uh, so like I said, with fan graphs, we remain in our, in our little August period where we're just kind of checking in on what's going around baseball and seeing what's happening as the playoff races tighten up a little bit. Uh, right now today we have actually, it's part of a two part series we got this week where Kevin Goldstein checks in on the playoff contenders and what their strengths and weaknesses depth wise are down the stretch. Uh, we've got, like I mentioned, Ben Clemens on the Padres we got an, actually a fun interview with Cedric Mullins talking about his hitting with David Larilla. People are interested how Mullins kind of revamped himself and went from uh, kind of non-prospect outfielder to legitimate MVP candidate, which is kind of crazy. And we'll have other stuff coming down the week for our usual stuff. Uh, we'll have pieces on the rookies of the year. We have a piece on Starling Marte coming tomorrow. And we'll have everything just off the latest news and notes and whatever is going on in baseball. So as always, come on over to Fangraphs. Check us out. Get a sign up for a membership if you like what we do. Twenty dollars a year ad with ads, fifty dollars a year ad free, which makes the site browsing experience that much faster. Come on down to Fangraphs. We've got t-shirts. Do it. I need a t-shirt. Where's my t-shirt, yeah, John? Yeah, forget a Fangraph. I'm not giving you a t-shirt. What? Why would I give? Why would I give you a t-shirt? You've been on this podcast for like five years. I don't even have access to the t-shirts. I don't know where they are. They're in a warehouse somewhere. Go bother the warehouse unbelievable ben Lindbergh, meg rowley jay jaffe ben clements go go drop dave cameron a line isn't he with the padres doesn't matter go bother him jeff sullivan the rays is closer to me they they know where the warehouse is i don't know where the warehouse is unbelievable uh no no button downs from you no button down advice no fan graphs t-shirts what am i in this for john what what is our relationship really about if i'm not getting t-shirts in this for clothing i got it that's what i that was the long game don't you have enough Tennessee shirts to keep you Well, warm hold on, in the night? hold on. That was not necessary, and you can never have too many Tennessee volunteer shirts. Shout out to the Vols, who start in uh, two weeks. How excited are you for Bowling Green, Tennessee, on the SEC Network um, two Thursdays from now? The hell are you talking about? <laughs> Graduate school started back tonight, actually, or today, rather. So, um, School, it's weird. Campus, full, again and uh yeah so there you go tennessee the volunteers as we wrap up our wednesday edition of the major league baseball conversation with john taylor 
John, thank you so much. Grind that Tennessee tape so you are ready to go for Tennessee Bowling Green in a few weeks as the Tennessee Volunteers march towards six wins at a bowl game. Follow you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. Talk to you next week, my friend. Absolutely. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.